This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. And now, let's begin. Uh, it occurred to me the other night, I was talking with uh, a group of three people who are here from San Francisco, um, that I met all of them for the very first time on the same weekend seven years ago. And that was kind of fun. Uh, and our next speaker is one of them. Um, at the time, she was at Cooper in San Francisco. I was there as part of an IXDA thing, and I got to meet her uh, very briefly at the time, but we've since um, had the opportunity to hang out on a few occasions. So, very happy to have her here, and just that, that little bit of history occurred to me just the other night at opening drinks. So, very happy, and please join me in welcoming Kim Goodwin to the stage. Thank you. Good morning. Why are you all here instead of out there building Lego and robots and stuff? I would be getting a jump on the competition if I were you. Ah, well, I hope everybody had fun at karaoke and drinks and other festive things you did last night. Uh, what, what was the song of the evening at karaoke? All right, all right. Ah, I'd like to start off with a little story this morning. So, some time ago, I was reading a science fiction story, one of those po post-apocalyptic ones where the surface of the earth is a wasteland. Nobody lives there, as far as we can tell. And what people are left, that we know of, live underground, in a great big concrete bunker that they call the silo. Now, as far as the people in the silo are concerned, they are the whole world. There's nobody else around. There's just however many thousand of them are there. Now, as the story progresses, what you learn is that actually there's more than one silo. And the architects of the silos did that on purpose because they figured if people think the silo is the whole world, they'll be easier to control because they'll have a narrow view. And if they start to develop dangerous ideas, well, it'll be easier for us to contain those in, in one silo, right? We can sacrifice one silo if all the rest still keep going. Now, cynical creature that I am, as I was reading this, I started thinking about another kind of silo that I see a lot of. Yeah, we're easier to control in silos too, aren't we? Um, unfortunately, the silos we have in organizations make our thinking narrow in the same ways. And when I think about a lot of the worst user experiences I've had, they're actually due to silos. They're due to the space between silos that I think of as UX purgatory because it's a space that nobody owns. Well, that team's responsible for the mobile app. We're responsible for this little corner of the website over here. They're responsible for customer service. Well, if you're an actual human being getting passed from team to team, God help you. For example, where I live in, uh, in California, I'm sort of an old fogey. I have a landline and I have DSL at my house, both of which are provided by AT&T. They come into my house on the same wire. They are connected to the same jack. I pay one bill, so I think of it as one service, right? So what happens when I have a problem with my line? Because you see, we have badass squirrels in Oakland and they chew on the wires sometimes. So I start hearing the crackling on my line and my internet access is going in and out. So I go to the website thinking, I need to call somebody to fix this, so do you see my first problem? 
Yeah, we have a little IA problem going on here. Which one do I talk to? I don't know, because it's my internet and my phone. Pick one at random. Call up the facility. They send somebody out. And the technician shows up, takes a look. Well, I'm the phone guy. You need the internet guy. Of course. So I call up again. And the internet guy comes out. Internet guy takes a look. Well, yeah, you need the phone guy. Okay. So I call back and I say, all right, to, to the person in the call center. Very politely, I said, I need these two people here at the same time. Can you do that? And she says, well, no, my software only lets me see the phone guys. I can't schedule the internet guys. Deep breath. I said, politely. I said, do you work in the same building as the other team? Yeah. Is it possible to walk down the hall, <laughs> talk to them, figure out when you can schedule people together? And she said, oh, <laughs> I guess I could do that. First time it had occurred to her. Because you see, the silos in her software created silos in her brain, right? This is a pretty insidious way of thinking, and it infects all aspects of the customer experience. So, you know, we can laugh about how organizational structure imposes silos on us, but you know what? We do some of this to ourselves within our very own teams in the way that we define problems. Because when you think about it, the design starts with how you define the problem to be solved, doesn't it? And yet we all use these things called user stories, right? Narrow problem definitions lead us to narrow solutions. So when I think of the average user story, I think of something like this. As a user, I want to log into my account. When was the last time somebody said, what are you doing this weekend? You said, I want to log into my account. Because <laughs> that sounds compelling, doesn't it? That is not a story, guys. That is a way of scoping and chunking work that it can fit into a sprint. That's not a story. That doesn't help us understand comprehensively what that user is actually going through. And, you know, if we think about the design of user experience as the design of structure and flow, there is no flow to that. There's like this much. And so when we define problems in such tiny chunks, this is where we ourselves are going to be likely to do less great work than we could. So the tool I'd like to suggest to you, not to necessarily replace user stories, but as a thing to do before you lay out your user stories and start writing those JIRA tickets, uh, is to say, let's look at the whole experience. Even if we don't own the whole experience, let's at least give ourselves permission to spend a couple hours thinking holistically across those silos. And that's where scenarios come in. So I hear a lot of people use the term scenario, use case, user story, as if they're one and the same. That's kind of like saying that apples and bananas are the same thing. They're all kind of fruits, but they're really not, not the same. Because a scenario is end-to-end. -end. A scenario starts where your user actually thinks that story begins and doesn't end until they think that experience is over and resolved. And that's usually a very different perspective from what you have on it. And that scenario might include things that aren't even your product or your service. That scenario also doesn't include a role. It's not as a user I want to. It's as Kim, I have this need. Right? It's, I have this situation. It's starring a persona, or if you're just kind of allergic to personas, a real human being who fits a behavior pattern that you need to design for. And that's them using your future 
service or your future product from start to finish. And I want to emphasize that uh, the fact that it's a persona or a real human because roles, roles are like little bits of machinery, right? Um, we might say, well, I'm designing for doctors. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. One is that even in terms of skills and workflow and needs, people within a role are not monolithic. Uh, for example, I had a team that was working on software to support knee and hip replacement used by orthopedic surgeons, pretty darn specialized group of users. And yet we found if they were trained in Europe versus in the United States, they literally started cutting in a different place. They had a different approach to the surgery. So even that narrow role is not monolithic, okay? Think about people traveling on an airplane. Frequent flyers versus people who maybe travel three or four times in their lives. Yeah, those are really different audiences. And we're human. We bring our skills and our knowledge and our emotions to that situation, right? And if we forget that part, then we're not going to do great design. So how do we do this? Well, one is scenarios actually start with your user research. If you decide I'm just going to, you know, jump in with what I know, you might do all right, but you're much better off if you start the first time you talk to a user and you don't define that conversation narrowly. So instead of saying, hey, we're going to talk to you about how you use our website or how you use this app, we're going to say, let's talk to you about how you deal with this whole part of your life or your job. So let's pretend for a minute that we're my uh, most used airline, United. I'm based in San Francisco, so I always end up on United one way or the other. So let's say we're the website team, and we're tasked with, you know, improving on that experience. Well, we're going to go out and we're going to interview some passengers. And we're going to interview lots of different kinds of passengers. So let's say one of those is Karen. She's a frequent flyer, travels 100,000 or more miles a year. She's really all about avoiding hassle. She wants to maximize her, uh, her status perks. She's a frequent flyer, so she feels a little bit entitled to being treated well. She wants the upgrade. She wants all those points. And she wants to forget she's on a plane because she spends a lot of time uh, flying, she wants to get work done or at least watch a movie and be as comfortable as she can because it's not like flying is a special experience for her. So if we're doing an interview with somebody like Karen, uh, we're not going to say, tell us about how you use our website. We're going to say, hey, what kinds of trips do you take? Tell us about the kinds of trips you have taken in the past. And as we talk with her, we're going to hear things like sometimes she takes complicated trips where she's going to multiple cities and has a complex route. Sometimes she takes simple round trips, no big deal. Uh, and sometimes her trips are, um, you know, interrupted. There's weather or a mechanical issue or something. If she's going on vacation, maybe she'll buy a trip with miles, and that's a little bit different process. And so we're going to get a sense of their different situations that she has to face. And so in our research, uh, if you went to Steve Portugal's session or any of the other research sessions, we're going to start getting her to tell us stories. Tell us the story of the last time you took a routine trip. And as she starts to tell you stories in that user interview, you're going to hear a lot of things about that experience, only some of which involve the website. So you're going to hear about how she uses the website to, uh, to look at what's available. Maybe she checks, you know, Seat Guru to figure out if that's a decent seat on, on the plane. Maybe she looks at, uh, you know, some multi-airline website to see if somebody else's schedule is more convenient before she winds up at ours. Um, so she's going to do that. Once she's got her plane ticket, she's going to go figure out, where am I going to stay? Maybe she's going to get a rental car. Um, she's going to check the location. She's going to use Google Maps to make sure her hotel's in a good spot. Um, 
As the trip gets closer, she's going to check the weather and figure out what should I wear, what should I pack. Uh, she's going to have to figure out how to arrange a taxi or get an Uber or something. She'll check in, maybe have to check her bags, although she tries to avoid that, deal with the security hassle, find the gate, wait at the gate, go through the boarding process, maybe play with some in-flight entertainment or get food or uh, drinks or whatever on the plane, get her luggage. Now, where do you suppose this story ends in her mind? What's the, what's the ending of that story? She and her luggage are safely home again and her expense report is done, right? That's where the story ends for her, which is long after she's done using our website. So we want to have that conversation with her because it's going to give us deeper insight into, for example, where does she have an expectation that's amiss that we could have set in the booking process? So there's a lot of interconnectedness in that experience that we want to resolve. So then we're going to look at what we can fix, okay? Now, I don't have a lot of time to dig into journey mapping, but it's a great tool for this. A uh, good way for a team to diagnose what's actually going on in an experience, right? Lay out what the steps people are taking are, talk about uh, what their expectations and goals are, and talk about how they feel at each step of the process. Because we're going to identify where are their negative feelings, like frustration that things don't work like we think they should, or anxiety that, mm, is my goal going to be met here? I'm not sure if it will. Or where's there's just too much work, too much cognitive work, uh, too many passwords or security questions to answer, too much typing to do, whatever that kind of work is. And if we look at where the frustration shows up, you know, that's going to give us clues to where we really need to do a better job of it. And then we can start to brainstorm and, and think about, all right, what would be an awesome way to do this? And then we can start to tell each other stories about, let's imagine that future. Right? Let's imagine she has this situation. How should it work tomorrow? And we're going to use storytelling as a generative tool because we've all been making up stories since we were this tall. And so we know how to do that. It's not hard. And it's a thing we can do across disciplines, across all of our teams. No design skill required to do that part. But it's not just about fixing what's wrong. I've never really identified with the term usability professional. Because I've never met a chef who described themselves as an edibility professional. <laughs> it's kind of a low bar, don't you think? Edibility. That sounds like a restaurant I don't want to go to. Uh, I don't want to use a product that's usable. I want to use a product that is somehow way more compelling than that. Um, so if you want to get people to that point where they think your product or your service is awesome, you've got to do something that's unexpectedly good. You have to exceed their expectations somehow. Now, sometimes that's just plain customer service, right? That's the, the hotel front desk remembering your name or the barista remembering how you like your coffee. I find that in software, what helps me get to what's unexpectedly good is to imagine that instead of a piece of software, that persona or that user is interacting with another human being. Now, that's not to say we're going to pretend to be human because when software pretends to be human, it always comes across like an idiot human because it's just never that bright, uh, and that's annoying. But if you think about what would a clever, helpful human do, well, you know, if they serve you soup at a restaurant, they don't ask if you want a spoon with that. They just anticipate that need for you. So imagine if our software were smart and got to know you and anticipated reasonable things that you might want. What would that be like? So let's take Karen, our frequent flyer, for example. What would a thoughtful human do to improve her journey? Well, she would say to our thoughtful human, she'd say, you know, I have to go to Seattle on Monday morning. Uh, I want to come back Wednesday night. What do you got for me? And then we'd say, all right, I know your preferences, so here's a flight. Uh, 
that has premium window, uh, premium window seat, because I know you like extra legroom. And I know you hate to check a bag, so this one has good size bins. You have a good chance of getting your bag on. She says, all right, that, that one will work for me. Um, and then our helpful human would go a step further and say, excellent. Because I am the world's best administrative assistant, I'm going to book your hotel at the Hilton, because I know you're a member there and you like it. Um, going to show you a map of that so that you can make sure it's convenient to your business meeting. And if you want a rental car, here's what I'll reserve for you. I've got your credit card on file. It's all good. Uh, and if you're good with that, I'll put it on your calendar. Karen says, awesome. I'm good with that. And then time passes, and the flight gets closer. And her human assistant would say, here's what the weather's like in your destination. Uh, here's your boarding pass. And by the way, I know where you live, so um, do you want a car at your house at 6.30 in the morning? Okay, I'll take care of that for you. So that would be a pretty good experience, right? So let's say she gets, to, uh, gets there and she says, all right, I've got a bag to check, though. Uh, I don't usually do that, but today I have a lot of stuff. No problem. We know who you are. We don't have to make you go check your bag in. We can just give you some sort of permanent identifier. And, uh, and we know who you are. We'll, we'll take care of that. She gets to the airport. She says, ah, I need a meal on the plane. Can you make sure there's something vegetarian for me? Sure, no problem. Taken care of. Now, this is all pretty good. Now, let's imagine she gets on that plane. And, you know, last time she was halfway through a movie when the plane landed. Don't you hate that? The movie's not quite the right length. Well, you were flying just last week. You want to finish that movie that you were watching? We know who she is. We know who was in that seat last time. Mind you, there's a point at which knowing people too well starts to feel a little big brotherish, so we have to calibrate that a bit. Um, but this is the kind of thing that a helpful human does, right? They anticipate your needs. They know how you like your coffee. Software can do a lot of that stuff. We just have to know where the uncanny valley is, right? So some of this is obviously way bigger than the website. So you're sitting here thinking, Kim, you are so nuts because we are never going to get permission to do this. That is not my point. Okay? Other people put you in a pretty small box. Don't start by putting yourselves in that same small box. Think bigger. One of the things I most often have to do when I hire designers is beat their instinct to start with constraints out of them because they have been trained to start with what's feasible, just because they, get, they have that argument so often. And you know what? We're going to keep having that argument our whole careers, because our job is to say, what would be awesome? I know we can't do all of it, but let's start with what would be awesome, and let's step backward from there, right? So you're going to start, even if it's just for a couple of hours, by saying, if we ran the world, what would this experience be like? Okay? And we're going to start to tell other people the story of that. And we're not spending a month on this. We're spending a few hours on it. We're giving ourselves that mental space, okay? So part of the point of making it a story is that as we tell each other stories, stories are generative. They help us come up with great ideas. Um, but they also help us focus on the right area. So a story that starts from the per persona's point of view, right, this person who has this set of skills and these emotional needs and this environment has this situation. What happens next? It's like writing for a fictional character that you know well. What unfolds? What would make that a great experience? And you start to think about flow very naturally that way in a holistic sense. Because we're not constraining ourselves yet by writing all the JIRA tickets for it. Okay? So the contents of that scenario are going to be essentially what's the information exchanged between the human and the system? 
What does the human have to tell the system for this all to make sense? What kind of information is the system going to give back to the human? What decisions is that human making? What we're not going to worry about is what is the mechanism by which that happens. We're not going to say she presses a button, she uses a keyboard, she grabs a list box. Because we don't know yet. We haven't drawn anything. We don't know if that's the right solution. So if, for example, we have a photographer who wants to get the photos of her baby boy's first birthday off the camera, we know that her goal is to make sure we're preserving those memories. And so we're going to say, all right, our product is somehow slurping those photos in, and during that process, it's giving her reassurance that it has the photos. There are lots of ways we could make that manifest in an interface, right? We could show a progress meter. We could show her the photos one by one and confirm that we're backing them up. Who cares? The point of the story is she's getting reassurance as that process cranks along, right? So that's what I mean by don't worry about the mechanism, but do talk about how that experience feels, okay? So, if we think about Karen's future use of our, of our system, um, we know it's not going to be a human being because we want to steer her to the website, but she's going to go and she's going to say, all right, she needs a round trip to, the, to Seattle. She tells us when that is. Um, she travels out of two airports. We show her options from both. Um, she's going to pick one that has her preferred seats and the, uh, the standard overhead bins so that she can get her suitcase in there. And then, once we've got her flight figured out, we're going to say, okay, you haven't left? Here's, here's your preferred hotels. Uh, which one do you want? And by the way, do you want us to book that rental car? And she says, yep, my plane ticket's good, my hotel's good, my rental car's good, make it so. And we're going to charge her credit card, send that over to her calendar through you know, some sort of calendar API, and that's pretty darn close, actually, to the human assistant part of the experience, right? And then over time, we can send her the weather. We can say, here's your boarding pass, and if we have a deal with Uber or the local taxi, taxi company or something, we can arrange that car for her because we already have all of her credit card info and whatever. So, or you know, we can have her link those accounts, whatever, whatever works. So we could do that. Then you know, we have this like, special bag drop at the security line. Um, you know, we maybe redesign the seating area so that that, all, that whole process goes a little bit better. And we're starting to get a bit more outside the realm of what we know we can do on the website. But that's okay. We're going to carry the story through to its conclusion. So we're going to paint this picture with or for our colleagues, depending on how we work. And we're not drawing a bunch of stuff yet. We're just saying, imagine a world where this is the case. And then we have the conversation about, all right, which things are just on Mars? Which things are really interesting ideas that we want to explore further and see if we can make those things happen? And, you know, once in a while, somebody will say, actually, that's easier than you think. It happens now and then. And so we're going to make some, some obvious trade-offs, and then we're going to scope back our scenario just a little bit. And so, you know, maybe the business people say, well, yeah, we can't really do this preferred hotel thing because we have relationships with too many hotels, and, well, that's going to, like, step on those relationships. Ugh, bummer, too bad. Okay, we won't do that. Uh, and then maybe the legal people say, yeah, there's totally different taxi regulations in every location, in every city and state. That's a giant mess. You don't want to go there. Okay, we pull that out. Okay? Now, we don't pull everything out yet. We still give ourselves permission to be a bit exploratory with our next step, which is going to be sketching. Okay? Now, we may start to focus in on our part. We're not going to worry so much about what's happening on the airplane because we know we can't affect that because we're the website team. But we are going to think about what does she need to know when she gets on that airplane that we can prepare her for 
So, for example, if there's not going to be food on that airplane, can we make sure she has an alternative and she's not surprised on that 10-hour flight that there's no meal or whatever it is? Um, so we think about what could we get from previous parts of that experience? How does she expect us to know her so that we can pull that information forward if possible? And what does she need to anticipate that we can prepare her for within our little zone? And that's how we start to break down the silos, okay? So, you know, if we're the email team, for example, we're going to think about when we send you your boarding pass, what else do you want to know? Do you want to know about the weather? Do you care if there's Wi-Fi on the plane? How many of those questions can we answer for you, okay? And then we're going to start to sketch our storyboards, right? This is where we're going to start to imagine what that solution looks like. And so a lot of people will go to the whiteboard, start to lay out a screen, and, you know, they'll look at uh, navigation as their starting point. And then they'll sort of figure out structure and, and so on inside the screens from there. I'm actually going to suggest something different for you to try, which is to say, let the story do the layout on the screens and figure out the navigation from there. So what I'm talking about here is using a technique that, as far as I know, was invented by Walt Disney in the, uh, the early animation uh, that they were doing in the 1940s. Could have been somebody else, but the earliest references I found are Snow White, which is Disney's first movie. Um, so storyboarding in the movie business is basically taking the key points of action and in a very fast, low-fidelity way, helping people understand the state changes. And that's really what we need to do uh, when we start to design. When I see a designer draw a giant screen on the whiteboard and they say, here's the design, and they show me one static screen, I'm like, no. That's a layout. That's not your design. What happens over time? What's the journey through that? Just showing me a structural sitemap and, and one image doesn't do it. Instead, help me see what changes over time. So what you're going to do is storyboard each of the scenarios. Now, if you have multiple personas, you're going to have at least one scenario for each of them. If those personas encounter different situations, you may have several scenarios for each of them, right? So if you have Marcus, who doesn't fly very often, uh, and then you have Karen, the frequent flyer, well, they're going to have totally different scenarios. And by the way, Karen's are going to be maybe partly on the uh, desktop and partly on her phone. And Marcus's are probably all going to be on his desktop. Um, so, you know, this starts to help us cross the channels, cross the platforms, because flowing from one to another is actually pretty normal. So in this case, we're going to have, let's say, six different scenarios that we want to storyboard out. And when I say storyboard, I don't mean start making wireframes. Don't worry about the words and widgets yet. Just kind of rough out, here's roughly this kind of thing, this kind of content or these kinds of controls, hand wave, hand wave, go approximately here. So what you're doing is you're using the scenario to help you to figure out what do we need to see at the same time and what information or content is not relevant at this point in time. And by doing small multiples of your screens, you start to recognize, oh, here's a bunch of stuff that should be a screen state, and here's a bunch of stuff that's probably a completely different workspace. And the scenarios are going to drive the structure from the bottom up. So you're going to start to realize, ah, everybody seems to start here, so boom, that's the left tab on my, my interface, or whatever it is, right? Uh, and then that's going to drive what you need in terms of your top-level navigation. So even within an individual screen, your scenario can drive your layout. Now, it won't be right the first pass through, but it'll help you get something drawn that you can start to react to and iterate through. So, you know, if we say she's going to enter her password and her destination and her dates, boom, top to bottom or left to right, 
shouldn't the information probably flow that way across the screen, right? So we're going to let the story drive how we lay the screen out. And that way it's not, I think that looks better up here or down there. It's, no, this is the sequence in which it happens. That's why it's laid out like that. Okay. So uh, the great thing is if you start thinking about the content and the controls in chunks like this, it works really, really well for cross-platform design or for responsive design. So if she sees options from her airports, uh, we show her non-stops first. Uh, then she decides, all right, what seat do I want? Um, we're going to show her something like this, right? The content chunks are going to be, hey, which airport? Uh, here are the non-stops and the one-stops, the times. Here's how you can pick your seat. We show her some kind of visualization of that. These are very, very crude, right? Nobody's attached to these sketches. Um, okay, great, this is what you picked. Now let's do your return trip, same thing, bam, bam, bam. Uh, options, seats, confirm your flight. And so if you think about doing these across a desktop versus, say, a mobile phone app, these are just content blocks, right? These are just things that we can use as chunks and we can rearrange with the flow of the browser resizing with the size of the viewport, uh, and it works equally well mobile first or desktop, right? So uh, if you're designing for mobile and you're translating with desktop, it works really well in that context. So we're going to look for convergence across our personas. We're going to say, hey, you know, Marcus and, uh, and Karen have these two screens that aren't quite the same, but, you know, there's enough overlap that we can make that one screen simplify our system a little bit and not really get in anybody's way. Uh, sometimes that convergence doesn't work. Sometimes you give people separate workspaces if you have multiple personas, and that's okay. okay? So this is an iterative process. We're going to do those very high-level ambitious scenarios Gradually, we're going to tone down our ambitions, and we're going to get more and more detailed as we iterate through. So we're going to get to things like, well, when she picks a good seat, what does a good seat mean? Well, for her, that means it's a window, it reclines, and it's not next to the bathroom, right? Or, or it's not a bulkhead row. So we start to think about what's the stuff she looks at on Seat Guru that we can start to tell her on our own seat map. So that's the information we need to depict. So again, we start to sketch, and we start to do that higher level of detail. Now, this is going to drive how we lay things out. We know she cares about nonstop flights first. So guess what? We're going to do the default sorter. Order is going to be nonstops first. So we're going to use that to drive how we're filtering and displaying the information. Now, you can see, hopefully, that scenarios work at the very highest level, which is product definition. What does it even do? It starts to work at the structure and flow level and the screen layout. But scenarios are even a helpful tool when you start to get down into the pixels and the visual design. Now, visual design is one of those things that gets down into opinion wars pretty easily. But if you use the scenario to drive the visual hierarchy, where does your eye go first? What information only shows up when you look closer? Um, that's very helpful. Scenarios can also help you balance multiple, uh, multiple personas. So let's say you lay out this screen for Karen, who's a frequent flyer. She knows that SFO is San Francisco Airport. She knows what a standard bin is. Marcus? Yeah, he doesn't so much. So we're going to tweak the design for him a little bit. We're going to spell out the airport name. We're going to let him see what a, a larger small bin looks like. And then as we start to make sure that we're translating this into pixels and into the visual system, we're going to think about where should the eye start? What do people look at only later in the scenario? And that's going to drive our positioning and our type size and what do we want to 
pop out of the screen and what things do we want to recede. And that gives you, as an interaction designer, if that's your skill set, a better way to have a conversation with a visual designer to say, this is the thing that should be most important, this is the thing that should kind of fade into the background. And that way it's not you trying to dictate visual design, it's you trying to describe what you need to accomplish with the visual design. Okay. So, scenarios are um, definitely things that we could spend a lot of time on, we could walk through tons of examples, but the te technique is pretty simple. We all know how to tell stories, the key is to really start, start ambitious, uh, not be put in that little box that's defined by a user story or by the, uh, by the silo in the organization, but instead to say, where does the human being think the story starts and stops? Use that. Give ourselves permission to do that for a few hours or a couple of days, and then scope back from there. And even once we scope back, think about, where was this person before they arrived in my space? Where are they going next, and how can I better prepare them for that next step? And that's going to help reduce that UX purgatory that happens in between the silos. And thing to remember is storytelling is a powerful tool. If you tell the story of the future experience, that has power. That tends to be what is, is remembered. And that will give you a lot of influence over shaping the product uh, and not just monkeying with the pixels. Okay. Time for questions? Thanks, Kim. Thank you. It's a large room, so we'll use a mic for questions. So if you would like to ask one, please put your hand up. Over there. Joe, hang on. Uh, yeah, thanks for that, Kim. Um, I keep encountering this same uh, situation with personas or, or with, uh, I suppose, actors through a scene. Mm -hmm. And it's often um, executive assistants representing the executive. Mm -hmm. So much so that even scheduling workshops where I need to speak to the executive mm -hmm. or interviews, the EA would stand in for them. So I got this weird sort of inception thing where they're... I'm talking to someone, but they're representing someone else, mm -hmm. and I've got to represent that person representing someone else in the mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. um, is, is, that, is, is this character that represents someone else a, a, an easy per Like, I would imagine the person you've got here, the frequent flyer, mm -hmm. she very likely doesn't do this herself. Uh, well, a lot of people in business don't have executive assistants, and so... If we imagine that she did, how can we be the executive assistant is kind of what I was trying to convey with that. But certainly in enterprise systems, you do find cases where um, you have to support the work of people who aren't um, maybe direct users of something. Uh, administrative assistants and executives typically being the example of that. But in most cases, what you have is slightly different tool sets for those people or overlapping tool sets for those people. So if you're designing an email system, for example, a large company, you might have an executive assistant who's actually reading and filtering email. Um, that's fairly old school, actually. There aren't that many people who do that anymore. So I would consider that what's called a secondary persona. I'm going to design for the vast majority of people who read and deal with their own email. And then I'm going to think about, all right, how do I take this thing that makes sense to most people and make it easy for that executive assistant who's dealing with their own email and somebody else's to manage that without breaking it for other people. So when you have a series of personas, and there's almost always two or more kinds of users, what you have to do is, is sort of uh, make some trade-offs, right? And you have to figure out when there's an argument, who wins? 
uh, who's, whose needs are really going to drive the interface for the most part, and who do you just sort of tweak and accommodate? Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Next one. G'day. Um, I'm interested in sort of the, uh, a lot of the stuff you were sort of showing was, of course, US-centric. Yeah. But how do you um, intermediate between sort of cultural changes between the way, say, for instance, Americans fly with mm -hmm. everything absolutely, um, you know, tied down to the single sort of scent, mm -hmm. as opposed to Europeans and Asians who sort of tend to not have to deal with that crap unless they go on a really, really cheap sort of flight. Yeah. So it's a cultural sort of thing. How, yeah. how would you intermediate the, yeah. the cultural change between the two yeah. areas? So in any design space, um, you want to make sure that your initial user research is broad enough to accommodate those kinds of differences, right? So if you have even an inkling that, you know, by nationality or region of the world or something, that there may be differences, you want to do some research in each of those spaces if that's at all possible. Um, so, you know, if you have an inkling that in an enterprise space there might be some difference based on the size of your customer, right, whether they're a small company or a big one, um, or, you know, there's some differences based on, I don't know, uh, whether you're a nonprofit or, you know, what, what industry sector you're in or what have you. You want to make sure your research sample is broad enough to handle that because all the good design starts with a good understanding of the problem. And then what you're going to do is based on whether you see differences there, you might have additional personas that you have to deal with, right? And so... Um, in a fairly complex domain where there's a lot of variability, within a single role, you could have half a dozen different personas. So classic example would be a consumer space like shopping for a car, right? There's very different behavior patterns there. There are people who uh, read Car and Driver and, like, geek out on the tech specs. There are people who read Consumer Reports and want to know value for dollars, um, there's people who say, I want it, it's red. Um, you know, and there's a couple of other behavior patterns, and you want to make sure that you're allowing for any of those, but you're going to figure out who of those do we most have to appeal to with everything, and then you're going to have some corners of the website that appeal more to some of those, right? So the point with scenarios is we can spend a little time with one user type at a time and think about how to serve their needs very well, and then bring them together and reconcile them. Whereas if we're trying to hold all six of those users in our heads at once, that's really hard, right? So scenarios let us kind of tackle part of the problem at a time. Next up. Thanks, Kim. That was a really great talk. Um, so I'd like to ask, my question is, uh, the storyboards that you have are not quite the story. They're sort of the artifact that would allow mm -hmm. you to tell the story yep. to an organization. So my question is, uh, what are your top tips for how to use the storyboard that you mm -hmm. have created to therefore um, create the narrative, um, particularly yeah. I work at a large organisation, inside yeah. a large organisation? Okay. Um, so in, in my experience, the, uh, the detail and fidelity of the artefacts depends on how big and complex the team is uh, and how big and complex the design is. So, uh, and also to a lesser extent how skilled the team is. So if I've got a small team and a simple problem and pretty skilled developers, some whiteboard sketches and a conversation, that's really all you need for a lot of things. If I've got a, a really complex product with multiple parts and legacy bits and pieces, I've got a big distributed team, I've got less skilled developers, I'm probably going to document those scenarios in writing and have you know storyboard frame, text, storyboard frame, text, 
right? And then maybe I'll even have a section that is this button does this thing and actually get down to the level of spec. So it's, it's about adapting to where the organization is, how formal you get with it. Um, sometimes I've even done things where, you know, you do a little animated prototype and do some storytelling alongside of it. Uh, and that actually is great for sort of selling a future idea. If you want to see a, a really terrific example of this, um, go to, to your favorite search engine and look up Apple Knowledge Navigator. That's a great example of basically a scenario in action. Uh, and it's hysterical because it's more than 30 years old, but you will see clunky versions of Siri, uh, WebEx or something like that, FaceTime, the iPad, and yet they still sort of use floppy disks. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit off, but, uh, but that's a great example of how you can use scenarios to sort of paint future vision and say, here's where we're going in the long term, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, thanks, Kim. Uh, just wondering, do you ever struggle to work out who should be the primary persona and, um, you know, what do you base that on? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so figuring out who your primary persona is can be tricky. Sometimes it's dead obvious, right? Uh, if you're the airlines, your frequent flyers are going to be your primary personas because they're super demanding and that's where your, your revenue is. And it would be hard to make a case otherwise there. Um, on the other hand, you want to look at things like um, uh, what are the trade-offs you're making? So you could make the argument, you could say, yeah, but if we make it easy for all of the infrequent travelers, they won't stand in line and frustrate the frequent travelers, right? So your product is going to take a slightly different drift depending on who your primary persona is. Um, the factors are going to be who represents the biggest part of your audience, sometimes the most lucrative part of your audience. Sometimes it's just kind of a lowest common denominator thing. Uh, sometimes it's about what are the limitations in your product and is there an audience you really can't serve? You know, so for example, if you have some technical limitation that means you're never really going to satisfy those people, well, you don't want them to be your primary persona. So it's generally going to be a discussion with your, your stakeholders and say, if we design mostly for this person, we're going to make these trade-offs. If we design mostly for this person, we're going to make those trade-offs. But the key with your stakeholders is always to help them understand we're going to design for all of them to some extent. It's about which of them has to go to a little bit of extra effort to get their needs met versus which one do we optimize for, right? You never want them to feel like you're letting some of those personas drop. Does that make sense? Yeah. So. That's all we have time for. All right. Kim. Thank you very Thank much. You. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.